the Riverside Church in Manhattan was built starting in the late 1920s. It was a project of Rockefeller to build a church for New York City that mirrored the great 13th century cathedrals of Europe. And he built it with one preacher in mind, the Reverend Harry Emerson Fosdick, who at the time was probably the most popular and well-regarded preacher in the United States. And Fosdick said, of course, he would happily come and be the minister for this grand church, but he said, I'm done with denominations, so let's just make this a multi-denominational church. And so from the start, it attracted people from all sorts of beliefs within the Christian faith, and because its population reflected the population of the city in which it resided, it was a multiracial church as well. It is a fascinating community even to this day. And because it was what it was and the times are what they are and were back then, the Riverside Church had a strong, strong dedication to the work of justice in their community, in the United States, in the world. Their long line of preachers preached on topics of justice and they invited all sorts of fascinating speakers to come and speak from their pulpit on the trials of the time. And those speakers included Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Cesar Chavez, Nelson Mandela. And on April 4th, 1967, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before he would be assassinated. His speech that evening was called Beyond Vietnam, a time to break silence. And it was part of a larger grouping of speakers that evening, the clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam was the name of the committee. He had not spoken on the war before now. The Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Acts had already been passed and he had shifted his work towards the campaign for poor people. But now he was going to speak on Vietnam, a political third rail if there ever was one. But in his speech, he grounds his objections to the war in Vietnam on the effects it has on the war on poverty going on at the time. All these great social programs had been started that he had helped work on through the Poor People's Campaign, and all of a sudden they were undercut and ended like they were disposable as the war in Vietnam began. He said, it has negatively affected the poverty programs. He argues it is a negative effect on the poor themselves, for it is the poor who are disproportionately fighting this war we are in right now. And then he turns to his faith, to his Christian faith, and roots his objections there. The thing that has girded him and grounded him all this time. He declares that there is a sickness of hatred in our culture 
that is incompatible with the gospel of love that he believes in and that he preaches and does his work from. And so he calls for a shift in our national values to turn away from hate, to turn toward love. And he preemptively answers his critics this way as to why he is speaking about Vietnam. Ties everything back to those core values and that theology of his own. And he calls the speech beyond Vietnam because he carries that all the more further. He goes beyond the war, calling the war just a symptom of the times to change the culture of the world. A call to move from hatred to compassion on a global scale is ultimately what he asks for in this speech. I'm convinced, he says, that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit, motivates, and property motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. We can no longer afford to worship the god of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation, he says. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tide of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. And further, this way of settling differences is not just, he says. This business of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. Today, his Beyond Vietnam speech is highly regarded as are most of his writings and his speeches. John Lewis, who saw him speak countless times, said it was a speech for all humanity, probably his best. And certainly reading it today, and I had a moment where I thought we would just read that whole thing out loud because it is magnificent. For me, it is a straightforward, compassionate, human summation of the theology of America's most important public theologian. But at the time, not so much. By the time he stood up in the pulpit of Riverside Church, Martin Luther King Jr. was already the most hated man in America. Just a few years earlier, they conducted a poll of how people felt, an approval rating poll. They were doing them back then even, to how MLK was approved. And in America, 63% of the citizens held a negative view of Martin Luther King. That was double what it was two years ago at the time that, two years before at the time when civil rights and voting rights acts were passed. But as he turned 
towards the poor person's campaign, and now as he was turning his eye towards Vietnam as a result of the poor people's campaign, he was now under FBI surveillance constantly. They were trying to smear him as a communist. Ironic, because he has some negative things to say about communism in this very speech. After the speech was given, and after it was published in certain journals, this is one of the rare speeches that he wrote down first because he wanted it to be printed and not have his words misunderstood. King was denounced by no less than 168 newspapers across the country for what he had to share. The New York Times editorial board lambasted him for linking the war in Vietnam to the struggles of civil rights and the struggles of the poor people and said that was too facile of a connection and he's doing a disservice to both of those causes as a result and concluded there are no simple answers to the war in Vietnam or to racial injustice in this country. The Washington Post editorial board said King had diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, and his people. A political cartoon in the Kansas City Star depicted the civil rights movement as a young black girl crying and begging for her drunk father, King, who was consuming contents of a bottle labeled anti-Vietnam. President Johnson is reported to have said what the hell does he want? We gave him the Civil Rights Act of 64. We gave him the Voting Rights Act of 65. We gave him the war on poverty. What more does he want? And even Barry Goldwater, no surprise, had things to say about his Vietnam speech, saying to the press that it could border a bit on treason. A bit. And even close allies started to step back from the leader. The NAACP refused to take a stand on the Vietnam War and told him he was doing too much and hurting the causes that they both cared about, that he could not focus on both at the same time. Like the white moderates he wrote to in his letter from a Birmingham jail, he was in confronted by disappointment yet again in those he sought to work with. Slow down, give a little less fire. That was the message of the preachers in Birmingham that he wrote to. And so too the response to his speech on Vietnam. Those things don't go together, Martin. You're not helping any of us. You're hurting both sides. You're being too political. Why do you have to be so political and in the pulpit, no less, Martin? This response is not just language is not with me this morning. This is not confined, that's the word I'm looking for, to Martin Luther King alone. The charge of things being too political 
in this country, especially in churches, is bandied about still to this very day. To the point where, at least for a preacher and for other public figures, I'm sure, being accused of engaging in politics or of being too political is a deadly sin in the culture of the United States. My belief is that the thing Americans most fear after being called a racist is being called political. It's not something we talk about in polite United States society. In a church especially, the accusation of politics can be a hand grenade to any thrown into any conversation that one might be trying to have. And maybe we're right to worry about that. After all, politics and religion should be separated, right? And yet most of what we talk about when we talk about the separation between church and state, the separation between religion and politics is actually issues of partisanship, which is a whole different creature entirely. And partisanship absolutely should be avoided in our churches and from our pulpits for sure. We should not advocate for a party or a candidate. But we can, we can talk about our values. We see the accusation of churches and others being too political bandied about a great deal nowadays. Everything, everything can become a partisan football, whether we want it to or not. Whether it is partisan or not, pronouns are now a partisan issue. On one side, we have people who want to normalize accepting people's pronouns for what they are and referring to them the way they want to be referred to. And on another side, we're just angry that a part of speech exists. This was my I don't want to live on this planet anymore moment this week. Shakespeare never used pronouns. That's why he's a classic, except Yes, he did, and as someone pointed out, the entire first scene of Macbeth is Macbeth and Banquo trying to get more information on the gender identities of the three weird people they found hovering over a cauldron in the woods, literally. Do we want to talk about the sins of racism and sexism in our country? No, we can't do that, especially in our schools. We can't bring politics into these conversations. You want me to acknowledge that different people exist, people who are different from me? No, 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 that's, that's too political. We can't have that conversation in the public sphere. I might have to share something I have or somebody might have something I don't. No, 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 that's, that's politics at its worst. Don't bring politics into our schools, into our churches, into these conversations. the more we become divided from one another along these partisan lines, along these party lines, the more inane things get filed under us versus them. Star Wars is a partisan issue somehow, because 
we know it's an allegory, and who is the evil empire really representing here? I'm pretty sure it's the other guy, right? No, I'm pretty sure it's you. And I think the truth of the matter is we do this because ultimately we feel discomfort when our personal bubble is threatened a little bit, when information doesn't jibe with what we might believe. And so we cast the spell called politics on the conversation to make it silent. But none of what I'm talking about here are actual partisan footballs. None of these are really zero-sum, win-lose games. Nobody has to lose in order for somebody to win. We just have to have a conversation about it and who we want to be. Because ultimately, what we're engaging in is a conversation about our values. Whether they're different, completely opposed, slightly off-center from one another, these are conversations about values and the values that we want to live by as a community, as a whole. What are the values of, what is the character of the city we are building together? Because that's what politics is. Going back to the Greek root words, it has many nuanced meanings, including determining the rights of the citizens. Politics, the art of building a community across a diverse people. And it's hard work and it's ugly work, but it's answering the question, what kind of a community do we want to be on a national level, on a local level? What is the character of the city we are trying to build together? And if this sounds similar to the talk of Martin Luther King of building the beloved community, you are not wrong. Because that is the task of religion at its best as well. To understand the root core of its values, to understand what ultimately a people are accountable to that is larger than them, and to cast those values out into the community in the hopes that a better world follows behind it. None of this is easy work, of course, but we cry politics when we're having a value conversation because we might be opposed to a value being expressed or more likely we're feeling a little bothered by the implications of that value writ large and taken to its extreme. Because when King talks about building the kingdom of God on earth of building the beloved community, what he is talking about is taking those core values, that belief he holds that is formed by his faith and carrying it out to the nth degree and imagining what the world might look like, look like. King is rooted in his Christian faith, so much so that while he considered being a Unitarian for a while because value-wise he aligned with us, he ultimately could not because he needed that Christian grounding in his faith. All of his words, even in his political action, 
fell back on, relied on the gospel of Jesus as he understood it, the root of his faith. And what he drew from that was the commitment to nonviolence, the concern for the poor, the work towards justice and equity in the world. Some of this may sound familiar to those of you who understand our principles. So anyone knowing his commitment to nonviolence who was surprised at the stand he took over Vietnam may not have been paying attention entirely or were feeling a little uncomfortable about the implications of what that nonviolent practice meant. Anyone who was surprised by his pivot to the poor people's campaign probably was not paying attention to what he was saying or were feeling some discomfort over what the implications of that value meant. Did the values of Martin Luther King look a lot like politics? Absolutely, of course they did. Because building the beloved community and building the city on the secular level are so closely tied together they can never be completely extricated from one another. They share too much in common. They are not easily separated. But discomfort makes it easy to dismiss the implication of values taken out to the extreme degree, to dismiss them as mere politics, and then in turn dismiss the message and the messenger who is sending it, which is true of Martin Luther King in his own lifetime. 63% of Americans did not have a high, high view of him at the time of his death either. That we hold King in any kind of esteem today is due to the people who picked up his work after his death and kept working out his values and his vision in the community. Each Sunday, even a Sunday like this, there will be preachers all over this country getting up to give their sermons. And most of us, myself included, are not anywhere close to the orator or theologian that Martin Luther King Jr. was. But we get up and we give our sermons anyway because we know we are accountable to the values that ground us and to the people that we serve to share with them a vision of what those values writ large look like. Because if the root values of any faith tradition mean anything, if the values of Unitarian Universalism mean anything, that's the job. To compare and contrast our expressed values and the vision that leads from them with the state of the current world and to draw a picture of our values carried out and writ large in the community. 
And from time to time, it's going to look a lot like and sound a lot like politics because building the beloved community and building the city are questions of values. And often those values intersect and are so often one and the same. And from time to time, the message of those values will be a cause for discomfort as much as they are a cause for hope. Because we are complex and sometimes contradictory creatures. It's just human nature. But sometimes the hope is slim and sometimes the discomfort we might feel is just trying to teach us something, is just trying to get us to pause for a minute and take a look within. Ow, I felt that. Why? And each Sunday there are churches out there, most of them, including ours, is not a Riverside church in New York City. And nevertheless, we are here gathered to cast a vision out into the world based on the values we share and explore together. Imagining a vision of those values carried out to their ultimate ends. And we do that whether it looks or sounds like politics or not because that's the purpose of the church, to create and share a vision of a better world. Because the values and the vision that a church casts are ultimately more important and matter more than what it might look or sound like, as long as it is accountable to the values that we share. And so, Spirit of Life, give us pause to look within when the message brings discomfort. Give us strength and courage to keep building the city, to keep building the beloved community, even when we may be accused of politics. As MLK said himself, the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy. Amen. May it be so.